Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Some federal employees take remote working to a whole new level, holding government jobs while living overseas. They're called domestic employees teleworking overseas or DITOs. Most of them are the spouses of military or foreign service officers, and DITOs got a raise this year after Congress approved a locality pay equivalent. Well, now the State Department is recognizing one of its employees for her advocacy on the pay issue. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Congressional Advisor for the Bureau of International Affairs, Michelle Neeland. Finding out about the recognition felt just like a huge honor and also validation of the work that my colleagues and I were doing. You know, I have to say, just working on the civil service Deto pay equity campaign was really fulfilling in and of itself, but then also being recognized on top of that. And I received an award called the Eleanor Tragan Award, which is administered by the DACOR Organization of Foreign Affairs Professionals. And just receiving that validation for what we did from the sort of people senior to me in this field, and then also State Department celebrating that win was really meaningful and being recognized by the Secretary of State who recorded a congratulatory video for us. It was a very intimate ceremony, but it also felt very elegant and it was really cool to just feel honored along with the other winners who had done so much wonderful volunteer work at their posts. Yeah. And when we initially did the story, we heard from the State Department some enthusiasm that this was crossing the line, the finish line legislatively in that NDAA. From your perspective on things, what has the reaction been from the State Department and and your colleagues now that this is the law of the land and that this pay equity is now in the books? I've heard a lot of amazement from people, which I understand because it's no easy feat to pass legislation in only one year from start to finish. So we did work really, really hard, but also other factors play into that success, like the timing of our effort. I think it was the right time, a healthy dose of luck, and then a lot of people cooperating toward that. And I have to say, you know, everybody who I introduced this pay inequity to across State Department, as soon as they learned more about it, immediately said, well, how could we fix that? That doesn't sound right. So I did not encounter anybody who wanted to keep the status quo as it was. So that was encouraging to me. There were a few people who wondered whether it could be fixed and how we would do that, but we were able to move toward a solution as our discussions developed and as our research developed. And I just wanted to add kind of as an addendum to your first question too, it wasn't until my trip back to receive the award this week that I saw copies of my nominations and I saw that 40 of my peers, including outside of State Department, co-nominated me for this particular award, which I am really touched and amazed by. I had no idea it was that big of a list, but it just goes to show how many people are personally touched by this win, because as soon as it went into effect, people's paid checks were adjusted and they started receiving equitable pay to their peers and to what they were making when they were working domestically. So it hit and impacted families immediately, which made people, I think, really emotional and just grateful that we were able to succeed because this was an issue that had persisted since 2009. So I guess 14 years 
and the people who had been the civil service spouses who had been working that whole time from post had accumulative losses, which impacted their retirement and their TSP. So there's nothing that can be done about those prior losses, but at the very least, as of the implementation of this legislation, as of this year, 2023, people are now receiving fair pay. And it's really incentivizing this domestic employees teleworking from overseas program, which has been a lifeline for spouses of foreign affairs and military officers who are stationed abroad. As far as the visibility piece of things, I think that's key because I think, candidly, I didn't know about this until you reached out to our team on this issue. And that seems like a very common reaction to this problem that you brought to people's attention. Recognizing that, have you seen the State Department or folks such as yourself kind of raise that visibility to other people, other people who might want to be dettos, letting them know that, hey, this program exists and more significantly, it's more worth your while now that there is this pay equity uh, in place. I think the program is still a hidden gem. People are finding out about it more and more, especially those people like in my situation who are spouses of foreign affairs or military officers. I will say that it's still relatively hard to secure a dedo position um, from what I can see. It's easiest to set one up if you've already been working with your office for a while, ideally domestically in person in the same area so that you've had time to onboard and meet everybody and kind of learn your portfolio. Once you're well known in your office, it's more easy to have a remote work agreement, which is essentially what this is approved. And I think that's probably the case in the private sector as well. But it's not impossible because I've also heard of people who have been hired as dettos right off the bat after they've interviewed for a job they just found on USA Jobs. It's always worth a try. I'm just applying and explaining your situation and seeing how remote work friendly your office is. But like I said, it's really been a lifeline for people in my situation who we have professional skills and education, and we'd really like some continuity in our careers and to be able to keep sophisticated jobs going. When we have a lot of breaks in our careers, like what happened historically before the Dodo program, it's harder to work in areas that we really are passionate about and to work at higher levels. Obviously, the foreign service, military spouses, these are the populations where dettos have been a little more common, a little more part of the culture. Now that we're kind of in the situation where the pay equity is resolved, do you hear of other agencies beyond those two big ones where there's efforts to get this off the ground? We heard from some people from SSA testifying on Capitol Hill that they're trying to do something there. But what are you hearing from those other agencies? You know, I collaborate with military spouses as well. And this issue is also near and dear to their hearts. And earlier, I believe it was this year, there was an executive order passed asking all agencies to come up with a dedo policy. So I think that might be what you're referring to that came up in that hearing with SSA. I think all agencies have been asked to define what's allowable for their agency when it comes to the Dedo program. I know State Department took the lead on establishing the program and helps give guidance, but other agencies need to um, kind of adapt it or make it work for their own people. 
So I know that there are dados from all over federal government, from the small agencies to the big ones, and it's only been growing in popularity. You were saying in your speech the other day that eligible family members are just a population that the unemployment and the underemployment remains quite high for them. This DETO program, now that this pay equity is established, you know, it's kind of a mutually beneficial type arrangement. I was wondering if you could maybe expand on that a little bit more, how this is seemingly a a win-win for federal agencies to tap into this labor force and these people to kind of find uh, careers, recognizing it's hard to find careers when you're a foreign service spouse. You know, State Department has dug into our data for DETOs and has found that these employees have served an average of 14 years in the department. And we have specialized skills and training that make us valuable to our offices. So by bringing our federal jobs with us abroad, that allows for continuity in our careers that our predecessors never had. I actually think that foreign affairs and military spouses are the federal government's greatest untapped resource. Over half of spouses of foreign service officers are unemployed, like you mentioned, and many others are underemployed. And this is a population that's just ready to take on federal work. So I think we could do a lot more in that space as a federal government. Michelle Neeland, Congressional Advisor for the Bureau of International Affairs at the State Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. 
excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency 
and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.